Section 5 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 5. Four hours later, when the moon was high overhead and the room held but a single big shadow, the door opened softly and in came Stephen. He was dressed. He crossed the floor stealthily, unfastened the windows, and let himself out upon the balcony. A minute afterwards he had disappeared into the forest beyond the strip of vegetable garden at the back of the chalet. It was two o'clock in the morning, and no sleep had touched his eyes, for his heart burned, ached, and fought within him and he felt the need of open spaces and the great forces of the night and mountains. No such battle had he ever known before. He remembered his brother saying years ago, with a half-serious, half-playful, For if ever one of us comes a cropper in love, old fellow, it will be time for the other to go. And by go, they both understood the ultimate meaning of the word. Through the glades of forest, sweet-scented by night, he made his way till he reached the spot where that face of soft splendor had first blessed his soul with its mysterious glory. There he sat down and, with his back against the very tree that had supported him a few hours ago, he drove his thoughts forward into battle with the whole strength of his will and character behind him. Very quietly and with all the care precision and steadiness of mind that he would have brought to bear upon a difficult case at Wimpole Street, he faced the situation and wrestled with it. The emotions during four hours tossing upon a sleepless bed had worn themselves out a little. He was, in one sense of the word, calm, master of himself. The facts, with the huge issue that lay in their hands, he saw naked, and, as he thus saw them, he discerned how very, very far he had already traveled down the sweet path that led him toward the girl, and away from his brother. Details about her, of course, he knew none, whether she was free even, for he only knew that he loved, and that his entire life was already breaking with the yearning to sacrifice itself for that love. That was the naked fact. The problem bludgeoned him. Could he do anything to hold back the flood still rising to arrest its terrific flow? Could he divert its torrent and take it, girl and all, to offer upon the altar of that other love, the devotion of the twin for its twin, the mysterious affinity that hitherto had ruled and directed all the currents of his soul? There was no question of undoing what had already been done even if he never saw that face again, or heard the accents of those beloved lips, if he never was to know the magic of touch, the perfume of close thought, or the strange blessedness of telling her his burning message and hearing the murmur of her own. The fact of love was already accomplished between them. That was ineradicable. He had seen the sensitive plate had received its undying picture. For this was no foolish passion arising from the mere propinquity that causes so many of the world's misfit marriages. 
it was a profound and mystical union already accomplished, psychical in the utter sense, inevitable as the marriage of wind and fire. He almost heard his soul laugh as he thought of the revolution effected in an instant of time by the message of a single glance. What had science, or his own special department of science, to say to this tempest of force that invaded him, and swept with its beautiful terrors of wind and lightning the furthest recesses of his being? This whirlwind that so shook him, that so deliciously wounded him, that already made the thought of sacrificing his brother seem sweet. What was there to say to it, or do with it, or think of it? Nothing, nothing, nothing! He could only lie in its arms and rest with that peace deeper than all else in life, which the mystic knows when he is conscious that the everlasting arms are about him, and that his union with the greatest force of the world is accomplished. Yet Stephen struggled like a lion, his will rose up and opposed itself to the whole invasion, and in the end his will of steel, trained as all men of character train their wills against the difficulties of life, did actually produce a certain, definite result. This result was almost a tour de force, perhaps yet it seemed valid. By its aid Stephen forced himself into a position he felt intuitively was an impossible one but in which nevertheless he determined by a deliberate act of almost incredible volition that he would remain fixed. He decided to conquer his obsession and to remain true to Mark. The distant ridges of the dim blue Jura were tipped with the splendors of the coming dawn when at length he rose, chilly and exhausted, to retrace his steps to the chalet. He realized fully the meaning of the resolve he had come to, and the knowledge of it froze something within him into a stiffness that was like the stiffness of death. The pain in his heart battling against the resolution was atrocious. He had estimated, or thought so, at least, the meaning of his sacrifice. As a matter of fact, his decision was entirely artificial, of course, and his resolve dictated by a moral code rather than by the living forces that direct life and can alone make its changes permanent. Stephen had in him the stuff of the hero, and, having said that, one has said all that language can say. On the way home in the cool white dawn, as he crossed the open spaces of meadow where the mist rose and the dew lay like rain, he suddenly thought of her lying dead. Dead, that is as he had thus decided she was to be dead for him. And instantly, as by a word of command, the entire light went out of the landscape and out of the world. His soul turned wintry, and all the sweetness of his life went bleak. For it was the ancient soul in him that loved, and to deny it was to deny life itself. He had pronounced upon himself a sentence of death by starvation, a lingering and prolonged death accompanied by tortures of the most exquisite description. And along this path he really believed at the moment his little human will could hold him firm. He made his way through the dew-drenched grass with the elation caused by so vast a sacrifice singing curiously in his blood. 
The splendor of the mountain sunrise and all the vital freshness of the dawn was in his heart. He was upon the chalet almost before he knew it, and there on the balcony, waiting to receive him, his gray dressing gown wrapped about his ears in the sharp air, stood Mark. And somehow or other, at the sight, all this false elation passed and dropped. Stephen looked up at him, standing suddenly still there in his tracks, as he might have looked up at his executioner. The picture had restored him most abruptly, with sharpest pain, to reality again. Like me, you couldn't sleep, eh? Mark called softly, so as not to waken the peasants who slept on the ground floor. Have you been lying awake too? Stephen replied. All night. I haven't closed an eye. Then, Mark added, as his brother came up the wooden steps towards him, I knew. You were awake. I felt it. I knew, too. You had gone out. A silence passed between them. Both had spoken quietly, naturally, neither expressing surprise. Yes, Stephen said slowly at length. We always reflect each other's pain, each other's moods. He stopped abruptly, leaving the sentence unfinished. Their eyes met as of old. Stephen knew an instant of quite freezing terror in which he felt that his brother had divined the truth. Then Mark took his arm and led the way indoors on tiptoe. Look here, Stevie, old fellow, he said with extraordinary tenderness. There's no good saying anything but I know perfectly well that you're unhappy about something, and so, of course, I am unhappy too. He paused, as though searching for words. Under ordinary circumstances, Stephen would have caught his precise thought, but now the tumult of suppressed emotion in him clouded his divining power. He felt his arm clutched in a sudden vice. They drew closer to one another. Neither spoke. Then Mark, low and hurriedly said he almost mumbled it it's all my fault really all my fault dear old boy stephen turned in amazement and stared what in the world did his brother mean what was he talking about before he could find speech however mark continued speaking distinctly now and with evidences of strong emotion in his voice i'll tell you what we'll do he exclaimed with sudden decision. We'll go away. We'll leave. We've stayed here a bit too long, perhaps, eh? What do you say to that? Stephen did not notice how sharply Mark searched his face. At the thought of separation, all his mighty resolution dropped like a house of cards. His entire life seemed to melt away and run in a stream of impetuous yearning towards the face. But he answered quietly, sustaining his purpose artificially by a force of will that seemed to break and twist his life at the source with extraordinary pain. He could not have endured the strain for more than a few seconds. His voice sounded strange and distant. All right, at the end of the week, he said. The faintness in him was dreadful, filling him with cold. And that'll give us just three days to make our plans, won't it? Mark nodded his head. Both faces were lined and drawn, like the faces of old men. Only there was no one there to remark upon it, nor upon the fixed sternness that had dropped so suddenly upon their eyes and lips. Arm in arm, they entered the chalet and went to their bedrooms without another word. The sun, as they went, rose close 
over the treetops and dropped its first rays upon the spot where they had just stood. End of section 5